Hey beautiful soul, this is the Menopause Coach Podcast with me, your host, Adele Johnston. I'm helping you create a vibrant life of joy and happiness without your menopause stealing your personal power and sass. Together, we're making menopause mainstream. It doesn't matter how old you are. I really think that tracking your cycle and, and really knowing those basics about your, your period, like I was mentioning, you know, how long is your cycle? How long is your period? What does your period blood look like? Pain, but all of those symptoms, right? You want to make a note of those and, and really get to know what your body is up to. Welcome back to another episode of the Menopause Coach Podcast. I am your host, Adele Johnston, the Menopause Coach as always. And today I am absolutely over the moon that I get to have this amazing conversation today with our very special guest. Now this episode is dedicated to every single female out there right now and aims to empower through what we do best here through education and knowledge building. So I'm super grateful that I get to interview the fabulous Nicole Jardim, the period girl herself. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Adele, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. You are super, super welcome. So for those of you that have not had the privilege just yet to get connected with Nicole, please do go ahead. The link to all of her socials are in our show notes. Now, Nicole is a certified women's health coach. She's a writer, a speaker, a mentor, and the creator of Fix Your Period, a series of programs that empower women and menstruators to reclaim their hormone health. It uses a method that combines evidence-based information with simplicity and sass. So now you're all saying, I know why you're interviewing her and chatting. It's the sass, it's the vibrancy, and it's owning our shit. It's getting our complete knowingness of our body. So thank you for saying yes to being here with us today. No, thank you for the work that you do. It is so, so important. All right. So you've been working with women all around the world and I've read that you've impacted tens of thousands of people's lives and with your women's health approach and your top rated podcast, The Period Party, which is available on iTunes. So we will make sure that there is a link there for the listeners today to go ahead and listen to all of the amazing shares of knowledge and information that you put out there. You've got a really empowering story behind how you ended up being such an inspiration in the period space. And I wonder if you might just give us a little overview of your own journey and what led you into this line of work and supporting women around the world. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. I was definitely on what you might call the poster child for period problems. <laughs> that was basically what it felt like growing up. As a teenager, I had terrible periods. I mean, pretty much everything. They were just very heavy. They were really painful. There were definitely days I stayed home from school. There were definitely days I leaked through my school uniform. All of these things were so traumatizing back then. And I kind of laugh a little bit about it now, like especially the leaks, because who really cares? But, you know, that was one thing. And then I remember also experiencing like massive mood swings as well as very irregular cycles that started to, my period just started coming every three or four months. So it just felt like a whole roller coaster. And it honestly felt like it was just hijacking my life. And my mom had had terrible periods too. So she just assumed this was normal. And it wasn't until my late teens that I went and saw her gynecologist who immediately recommended the birth control pill for me. At the time, I was beyond thrilled because I felt like I was finally part of the cool kids club. Uh, and I would be, you know, I would have this pill and it would fix all of my period problems, which in fact, I, it technically did. I, you know, within a month, I had no period pain. I had a lighter period. I, I had a period that came every single cycle or at least came regularly. And, you know, I felt like my mood stabilized. Everything just seemed to calm down. And I f truly felt like I had my life back. And it wasn't until probably a year or two into using it that I realized that there was something wrong because I started to have uh, UTIs and yeast infections, which I'd never had before. So I was probably about 20 or 21 at that point. 
my hair started falling out. I started to develop melasma all over my face as discoloration on your skin. And I remember just going to the gynecologist over and over and over again. And, you know, for medications for all of these things, I remember her saying, well, you know, like this is just sometimes side effects of being on the pill. But I, you know, I just assumed again, like this was normal and that I should just keep taking it. She was like, don't come off of it kind of thing. Um, And at that age, you just don't really know any better. At least I didn't. It never even occurred to me. And then I remember, you know, things like uh, painful sex started to crop up and, you know, all of these problems that just seemed crazy to me at such a young age. I then started having really bad joint pain and really terrible gut health issues. So again, like I said, all of these sort of seemingly unrelated symptoms that could definitely connect back to the pill now that I, you know, now that I know what I know. And hindsight is definitely 2020 in this situation for sure that was applicable. And so what ended up happening was I had an allergic reaction to one of the medications I'd taken for UTI. Um, and I ended up in the ER. Uh, you know, with a very high fever and I was bright red all over my body. And I thought, okay, I think this is it. I think I can't do this anymore because now it's been nearly five years I've been on this pill. And a friend of mine had suggested I see her acupuncturist and I just kept kind of pushing it off and pushing it off. And the next day I booked an appointment with him because I knew that I needed to get out of this conventional medical hamster wheel that I was in um, because, you know, it was not only the gynecologist, right? Then it was the dermatologist to figure out what was going on with my skin and then it was the GI doctor to do a colonoscopy to see if I had Crohn's disease because of the gut health issues. And then there was a rheumatologist because of the joint pain. I mean, it was out of control, right? And I was still 22 years old. And so at that point, I I saw this acupuncturist and he was the first person out of all of these people I'd seen who explained to me that the pill might be behind all of these problems. Never, I hadn't, had never even occurred to me. I didn't even believe him. <laughs> Actually, I remember not believing him. And so that was really what set me on this path. It was it was truly the catalyst, I think, for this second half of my life where I, you know, I learned from him. I worked with him for multiple years. I came off of the pill working with him. I changed my diet. I changed my exercise, my lifestyle. All of these things changed dramatically. And that was what allowed me to finally have normal-ish periods again. And it took a long time because the pill had done a lot of damage and I have definitely wasn't taking care of myself as a teenager. I don't know really any teenagers who do that. That was sort of the beginning of this. And, you know, fast forward many years, I trained to be a health coach and then certified as a women's health coach. And then I did a lot of other training in, in women's health and hormones and nutrition and all the things. And here I am, basically. So that's that's kind of the gist of it. Oh, it's such an interesting story as well, an experience that you've you've kind of obviously fast forwarded through multiple years of dealing with that. But I think it's it's very brave as well, because what I would say is that there aren't a lot of teenagers who would be so in tune with their own bodies the way that you've just explained that and maybe would have just thought it's, you know, it's stress or it's just puberty or it's this or it's that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big thing. It's actually it, it takes me back and makes me think as well about how even when we talk about perimenopausal symptoms, we'll have a lot of doctors, like you said, you know, it's a referral out to dermatology, it's a referral out to, to gastric support. And we will look at treating the symptoms rather than root cause, rather than getting to the root cause. And we find this with so many women, don't we? I'm sure you come across that as well. Oh my gosh, so many times. It's this idea of just treating the symptoms and not actually treating the the underlying causes. And so that's really what the birth control pill was for me, right? It was just a Band-Aid. Um, you know, my dad had died really suddenly when I was 11. And, um, and that was extremely traumatic, obviously. I felt like that just sort of kicked off a sort of cascade of, of things in my life where, you know, I my emotions weren't handled, of course. I There was really no help for my sister and I or my mom, um, you know, from a psychological perspective to, to even cope with that kind of trauma, that kind of loss. And so I feel like, you know, it all sort of stemmed from that experience. And so there was that. I definitely wasn't eating well at all. I was super stressed with school. I was constantly, you know, such a perfectionist trying to get really good grades. Um, trying to get in college, all of these kinds of things. And so I think that, and again, everyone can relate to this, right? Because we all have these underlying stressors that sort of tip the scale 
And all of our bodies are different, of course. And so some of us, we have a higher threshold, whereas some of us don't have a lower one. And then, yeah. And so then we go to the doctor. And of course, the recommended solution is, is some kind of medication, some, in many cases, a birth control pill or some other form of birth control. And that's just hugely problematic, in my opinion. I would absolutely agree with you. I think that it has its place for sure. Um, and certainly, you know, when we think about the impacts of what you've been through, and I'm, I'm really sending love, and I'm so sorry that you faced that at such a young age, having such a traumatic loss like that, would have been an endocrine disruptor for you. So we know that when the endocrine is disrupted in the way it is caused by grief or stress or chronic impacts like that, that it actually has a knock-on impact. And the first thing that the female body will do is to shut down a little bit more in the reproductive space because it's not deemed to be a critical function when the body is acutely stressed in that way. So yeah, it completely makes sense. Knowing what we know, knowing where we are with this, the episode today then, going a little bit inside this space, um, it's really intriguing for me to look at the contraceptive pill Um, our periods and then into perimenopause. So we have a lot of ground that I would love for us to cover as much as possible during this episode on. And maybe it would help us to look at if we take ourselves inside the space of our menstrual bleed, our period, our monthly bleed, whatever we want to refer to it as, I would be intrigued to understand from your perspective, being in this space as an expert around menstrual cycles and bleeds, what does a healthy period look like for us? So I think this is like a probably a question I'm asking on behalf of my twin daughters right now. And for every woman listening to this that has a menstrual bleed, what does it mean when we say a healthy bleed? It's such a good question because I don't think that is ever really modeled for us at any stage of our lives. There really is no education around this. Unfortunately, I mean, generally speaking, I'd say there is to some degree, yes, there is some education, but generally speaking, not really. I mean, I've had women come to me at 35 years old and say this is the first they've ever heard about what they should be aiming for. Um, So this is definitely like a little bit of a periods 101, the education you should have gotten (laughs) podcast. And so I would say, first of all, the your period looks a little bit different as a teenager than it does as a grown adult. And I can actually talk a little bit about that too. But I'll, I'll start with what it should look like in your, you know, late teens, 20s, 30s, before we hit perimenopause, when things definitely change. I'd say the first thing to think about is your cycle length. And cycle length is so, so important because that's determined by your date of ovulation. And ovulation is when the egg is released. And so cycle length can vary based on ovulation. But generally speaking, I like to see a cycle length somewhere between 25 and 35 days long. The average cycle length is 29 days, according to the research. Um, So generally speaking, what I see often is somewhere between like 27 and 30 days is sort of like the the middle ground. But that 25 to 35 day window tells me a lot of things. It means that it likely means that, you know, ovulation occurred. It can also tell me that, uh, you know, you had a, you know, a decent length of follicular phase and your luteal phase. So that's the first and second half of your cycle. And, you know, if it's shorter or longer, it's definitely indicative of things too, right? Like you might not have ovulated or ovulation has occurred really late in your cycle. So it's, you know, it's pushed out the length of your cycle. So all of those things to me indicate that something's going on there. And ultimately what we're aiming for is a, a fertile cycle. And I know that that sounds crazy to some people who are not interested in having a baby, but the point is, is that that's indicative of a healthy cycle when you're having a fertile cycle. So it doesn't mean you're going to get pregnant. Um, there's there's ways to avoid that, but it is important to think of it that way. And so I think the other thing is too, is to remind everyone that not everyone has a 28-day cycle. I know we've been sort of told that, um, but that's not necessarily true for the majority of people. Some people do have these consistent 27, 28-day cycles all the time, um, but not all of us do. So just keep that in mind. I, I think that that has been perpetuated because we use the pill for so long and those are 28 day cycles. Um, and so I, I think that there's part, that's part of why we feel that way or why we might have gotten that information. Um, I would say the other thing to consider too is how long your period is. So your period technically, or I like to see a period somewhere between three and seven days long. Uh, again, very similar to the length of your cycle. It can tell you so, so much. So if your period is three to seven days, Again, that indicates to me that estrogen built up high enough to 
to have ovulation occur and an egg be released. Um, and, you know, and, and also too, that there was sufficient progesterone to, you know, counteract the, the builder effects of estrogen on the uterine lining so that the, your period wasn't too long. So if it's over seven days, like eight, nine, 10 days, that indicates to me that maybe you didn't ovulate or there's an estrogen dominant situation, low progesterone, something like that, right? The estrogen is just building, building that lining and there's no stopgap. On the flip side of that, shorter periods are a problem too. So if it's like two days or one day or you're just spotting or, you know, kind of like heavy spotting, that's also a sign. Maybe ovulation didn't occur. Uh, you know, their estrogen is low, progesterone is low. So nothing's really happening uh, to really stimulate that lining enough to get it to the point where it's shedding, you know, consistently. So um, other things too, I think with like a longer period, oftentimes that could uh, indicate uh, low thyroid function too. Um, you know, iron deficiency can work in both ways, actually, uh, whether it's short or long. So there's multiple considerations, I think, for, for period length. Um, blood loss is another one that I, I think is important to talk about. Every time I share about this on Instagram, women inevitably are like, wait, is that for one day or for the whole period? <laughs> they can't quite believe it because so many of us have really heavy periods. And so a heavy period is basically 80 milliliters or more. Um, that is not that much. Uh, if you, sh- if you want to take a measuring cup, you should definitely look and see how much 80 milliliters is. That does not in, does not mean that you know we don't see a, a wide range. Uh, you know sometimes women lose like 150, 200 milliliters. I mean it can be really quite varied. And then there's some women who lose like five or ten milliliters. So I you know basically the norm or the average range is somewhere between 30 and 60. So like I said, anything up to 80. Uh, you know, between 30 and 80, I think is, is okay, can be okay. But again, remember to, you don't want to just take, every, you know, each symptom as, you know, as a defining factor for whether your period is healthy or not. You really want to just sort of look at all of it, right? Look at the full picture of all the symptoms you're experiencing. And, uh, and so, like I said before, um, there are light periods. And so I feel like anything under 25 milliliters, is potentially problematic. And it it could be what I was describing before about that low, those low hormones, not ovulating consistently, those kinds of things. Um, And so I will say too, uh, real quick with the heavy periods, because a lot of people are like, well, what does 80 milliliters look like? And you know, what does this mean for me? And so I think there's a few things like if you're soaking more than 16 pads or tampons, regular pads or tampons per cycle, uh, you know, that's, that's off, often a sign that something is up. Um, you also might be doubling up on period protection. You might be uh, doubling up or changing protection throughout the night, or you find that you leak uh, the eight days or more. Like I said, if you experience flooding, where you're literally bleeding through your period protection every 30 to 60 minutes, um, things like that. You know, if you have dizziness or your period really wipes you out or you're exhausted or maybe you have, uh, you know, low iron, low ferritin, um, you're iron deficient, those are all signs that your period might not be where it's supposed to be or might not be what you want it to be. It's probably too heavy. So that's, you know, that's a little bit about what should, you know, be happening there. I think the other thing I wanted to cover real quick too was the color of your blood because I get that question a lot as well. Uh, you know, I, I like to see a, a rich red. Um, it doesn't need to be bright, bright red, but we like to see it be red because a lot of the times, uh, you know, people might experience um, like browner or darker or even black or purpley colored blood. And oftentimes that darker blood um, is is from lying down for long periods of time. You know, it causes blood to pool uh, and then you stand up and you move about and, and you notice it. It's, you know, it's also the blood that shows up at the beginning sometimes. And that's usually because it's left over from the previous period. And oftentimes that's really common in someone who has a flexed or a tipped, you know, tipped back uterus. So it just slows the menstrual blood leaving the body. And then it becomes brown because uh, brown, you know, brown blood is just oxidized blood. Um, and so it's exposed to more oxygen and that's what causes it to get darker. So, you know, there are multiple things that I've written in my book about this and you can definitely look into that if you were interested more in the normal parameters of a menstrual cycle. But those are generally some of the things I think people should be looking out for. So helpful, really, really helpful. And like you say, we don't get this 
education. We don't get enough knowledge around all of this. And yet it's crazy. It's it's, it's similar, you know, in the, the space of menopause, it's similar in that way that, you know, we're blessed that we get to start our menstrual cycle. It's a, it's a symptom and a sign of health, isn't it? So, you know, when we talk about, I think you mentioned um, it being a fertile cycle, regardless of whether we want to reproduce or not, or, you know, that's maybe not on our agenda when we're we're super young. But I think what's important with that when we say that is it's the health of the cycle, isn't it? So the releasing and the the peaking of our estrogen and our progesterone elements because of what those two hormones do for us as females in our body. And the more and more that I was researching and reading on this, and we had a, a little off recording conversation about the combined pill um, because we both ended up using the same one. And I'd said, had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have taken it. And I certainly wouldn't have taken it for so long because I started that at age 15 and I came off the pill. I'd stayed on it the whole way through and I came off the pill when we started trying for our girls when I was in my 20s. So it was a very long time to be on the combined Um, contraceptive pill. And I think looking at it from a perspective of what I've then now now knowing what I know, what I've then done is I've actually prevented my body from naturally surging the estrogen and the progesterone that it would have naturally done had I maybe had some education around how to monitor my own bleeds and other forms of contraception, but didn't know any of that back then. So... It's, it's definitely one that we need to talk more on. We do, right? I agree. You know, I was thinking about this, actually, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, God, I wish we could have some research done on early perimenopause, early menopause, and is the pill a trigger for that? Like, we don't have really any research on that. All we have is, your, like, you have your experience. I have experiences with so many of my clients. We have these an- anecdotal experiences, but we don't have information that's really solid on this. And I think that that's like one of the most frustrating things, right, is that there's such a lack of informed consent when we go on these these very powerful medications, right? And we're going to get into that, I know, but I think that's it. Like, I had no idea. I mean, my biggest concern, I laugh about this now with my friends, actually, we were just talking about this the other day, they're all women's health practitioners, and we were texting about it. And I was saying, my biggest concern about going on the pill at 18, 19 was, am I going to put on weight? Because that's what I had heard was the worst side effect. Weight gain and acne. I think those were the two that come out top, isn't it? Yeah, weight gain and spots. We, we just didn't want to have that. It is, and you're completely right. It would be it would be interesting, certainly, to see that as some kind of randomized control trial, something that has a bit of gravitas behind it. But it's unlikely that we will have that type of research funded. Um, ooh, did I say that out loud? So I think this is where we kind of come into this space, don't we, around there are probably so many different factors and whether or not my own experience of the combined contraceptive pill for so long in my young years where I didn't actually allow my body to naturally release and surge in its estrogen and progesterone, has that contributed to earlier onset of perimenopause for me? There's multiple factors that we could look into and research for sure, you know, and and others might be around the kind of amenorrhea and some stopping of the periods for sport reasons. So I, again, was doing a sport in the entry level bodybuilding bikini level and I was a double Scottish champion. So I competed two years back to back. And I openly talk about this because, again, I would love to see some funding around athletic and sports level performance the impacts that that may then have on the female menstrual cycle over the duration of time. Does that then have an impact on earlier onset of hormonal changes like perimenopause, for example? But, you know, these are, like you say, anecdotal. We don't know for sure. Ooh, it's a big black hole. Well, that we have one, a general idea. <laughs> yeah, I know. Absolutely. Yes, I know. I'm like, oh, but we kind of know, actually. Right. We do. We do. And they're, I feel like they're relatively well backed up. <laughs> 
Yeah, completely. <laughs> so when we think about the education of this, because again, you and I both stand for, you know, making that good for informed decision around how we move on, having knowledge and education available. This is not so much at the fingertips, but at our earlobes. So I read that you mentioned that a lot of our education around our period the period really starting in the brain. So I'd love to maybe dive into that a bit with you if you are open to doing this with me because it fascinates the absolute life of me that obviously a major part of our endocrine system is within the brain and then flows all the way through right down into the ovaries. So can you maybe mention and give us a little bit of an education around what you mean by the period starting in the brain and maybe explain that to us a bit? You know, I'm going to preface this by saying that I always find it so interesting from a conventional medical standpoint that we view menstrual cycle related issues as a purely uterus based or ovarian based problem. And that's not really correct, right? It's rarely is the uterus or are the ovaries the problem. They are merely responding to external stimuli at all times, whether, you know, we are living in a state of chronic stress, that we're, we have trauma, like I was describing earlier, there are nutrient deficiencies, there's gut pathology, you know, there's gut dysbiosis, there's something going on with our liver, you know, we could go on and on, right? <laughs> like chronic inflammation, whatever. Right. So there's there's so many uh, stimuli that contribute to these uterine related issues or menstrual cycle related issues. So I just want to remind everyone that rarely is it that your uterus is the problem, <laughs> even though it's, it's sort of played out that way when we go to the doctor. And this is not me bashing doctors at all. It's just, unfortunately, the way the system is set up and it sucks. And so this is why, like you said, we have to empower ourselves, right? We have to learn this information. No one is coming to save us. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I wish somebody was because I felt the same way too for a long time. And I, I realized that I was on my own. And, you know, here we are. So what I mean when I say that is basically, I uh, will, we can talk about the phases of the menstrual cycle. So there's menstruation, the bleeding phase, that is day one of your cycle. So day one of your period is day one of a new cycle. And what happens is progesterone levels plunge right before you get your period. And this causes this breakdown and shedding of the uterine lining. And when your period gets underway, estrogen and progesterone are actually the lowest that they will be. And so what's really cool is that during this, you know, this first half of your, you know, follicular phase, this bleeding phase, as we call it, this region in your brain known as the hypothalamus, uh, it's has started to secrete gonadotropin releasing hormone or GNRH. And um, it's been doing that sort of like right before the end of your cycle or your last cycle. And the idea is that it's basically going to instruct your pituitary, which is that master endocrine gland, to start releasing follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. So again, right, your uterus and your ovaries are really just responding to what's happening in the brain and with other endocrine glands too, right? Like what's happening with your thyroid and your adrenals. And so that FSH um, is communicating with the ovaries, right? It's starting to recruit a handful of ovarian follicles. And each of these are basically like just this little balloon-like sac and it contains an egg. And so within those first couple of days of our period, FSH, you know, because it's coming from the brain, it continues to stimulate these follicles. And what happens is, uh, you know, if you actually were to test your FSH, this would be the time in your cycle to test your FSH. And FSH is a, a very potent indicator of what's going on with your ovaries and what's going on with your brain and that conversation between the two of them. And so we test usually between days two and four um, to see what's going on with that particular hormone and how the brain is is acting and how the ovaries are responding. And so that's your baseline level of FSH. And, um, and so anyways, like as we move, you know, into a few more days later into that later follicular phase and we start to approach ovulation, there's an egg that is selected. Um, and that's, you know, it's a whole combination of hormones that are, you know, communicating with your ovaries at that point. Uh, but an egg is selected. It has to do with FSH and AMH and various other things. And so that egg is now going to get bigger and bigger until it's mature. And then we reach ovulation. And then from there, what ends up happening is, uh, you know, the ovary is starting, those follicles actually produce a ton of estradiol. And that estradiol talks to your brain, and it's a whole feedback loop. And so that I think is so, so important for us to know because 
when your brain is hijacked by stress, and that could be drinking too much caffeine on an empty stomach, it could be blood sugar issues, it could be actual psychological stress, it could be lots of things, a lot of things that are ubiquitous in our society that are normalized as not being stressful, your brain responds to that. And as you were saying, right, like, it means that your body is saying, okay, well, maybe we should hold off on this thing. (laughs) And maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, And so that's where things start to get a little hijacked. But typically what happens is those ovaries, they produce the estrogen, tells your brain to slow down FSH and raise LH. And LH is luteinizing hormone. And that's the hormone that spikes and triggers this huge estradiol peak, and then ovulation happens. So there's this whole conversation going on completely unbeknownst to us every single month of our cycle. And it's kind of incredible when you think about it, because our ovaries are like these little mitochondria powerhouses, and they require so much energy. They require so much to to actually grow an egg to maturity and release it. So if you think about you know, what you need to give your body in order to for the, that egg to be released. It's it's kind of remarkable. Like I, I want everyone to just bow down to their ovaries for just a second because they're really doing a hard job. So that's essentially what happens. Ovulation occurs, the egg is released, it can survive up to 24 hours and it's just in the little um, fallopian tube. And then basically what happens is uh, if a sperm cell were to meet it and fertilize it, it would travel down the fallopian tube and implant into the uterus. If there is no sperm cell, there is no pregnancy. That little one cell egg just disintegrates. But all of this is driven by what's going on in the brain because then release that egg, that progesterone starts to be released from the follicle that the egg came from. And what's incredible about that follicle is that it is a full-on endocrine gland. So we've made ourselves an endocrine gland on top of another endocrine gland, our ovary, within a matter of, you know, two weeks. It's remarkable. Um, And we produce all this progesterone, and then that progesterone talks to the brain, and then the brain, you know, shuts off the ability for us to ever be able to ovulate again in that cycle. And then when it drops, we get our period and then we start it all over again. So it's kind of incredible when you think about it. Honestly, just listening to you express it and explain it as well. So obviously I have this knowledge already, but listening to the way that you explain it, I'm just like, we are flipping it phenomenal as women, right? How phenomenal. If we could see, and I say this to clients all the time, if we could see inside our body and what it is actually doing, we would be absolutely in awe of ourselves. There would be not one person in awe and in love with who they're who they are and what their body does for them. But we don't see inside. And we very rarely sometimes even allow ourselves to feel what we are experiencing because we will normalize it like you'd said around, no, I don't feel great after I have this or I don't feel so great after I do this. So Yes, the body is phenomenal. The brain is super powerful. We don't even understand enough around how phenomenal our brain is. It's super interesting. I think what we can come back to on this, however, what you've just explained there is maybe bringing in the the contraceptive part to this. So how does that then alter what you've just explained, this beautiful symphony, like this orchestra symphony that just does this amazing thing for us every single month. And these beautiful spikes and releases of estradiol, which we know is one part of our estrogen, estrogen being that plural without the S on the end, but estradiol being so phenomenal. It's like our queen bee hormone that just has hundreds on hundreds of functions for us. We've surged that, we've released it, we've released progesterone, which again, we know progesterone is super calming, it's brilliant for sleep. You know, it's like that GABA releaser effect. But when we then introduce a contraceptive, how does that alter the way that the body then goes through that symphony? Yes, okay, so this is, I think, so important because I have had conversations online with women who've been on the pill for a long time And they're trying to tell me that the pill doesn't work the way I'm about to explain it, but it definitely does. I promise. (laughs) And so I think that this is again, right, where informed consent comes in and really understanding the mechanism by which these forms of contraception work is so, so important because then you have an understanding of side effects. Like if I had known then that the, you know, the pill works multiple ways, you know, one of the ways is to prevent ovulation from happening and the other is to prevent fertilization. 
I would have understood, right? Well, if it prevents ovulation, it prevents all of these hormones from being made. And so maybe that's part of why I'm experiencing these symptoms. So like I just said, so it works in two ways, by preventing ovulation, preventing fertilization. And so it's essentially is stopping communication between the brain and the ovaries. And as I mentioned, that, you know, that's, that conversation is really important. And it's still developing as a teenager. So that's another, I think, very big problem for a lot of us who've been put on the pill as a, a teenager or a girl, young girl. And so this is that hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. So it's just this highway between the two. And so we're stopping this ovulation and the hormone fluctuations that come with it. So essentially your estrogen and progesterone that your body makes kind of just flatline a little bit when you're on the pill. And so the combined pill, so that's a, a combined oral contraceptive, it contains synthetic estrogen that's known as ethanol estradiol and a synthetic progesterone known as a progestin. And there are multiple different types of progestins, but this ethanol estradiol kind of makes the body think that it doesn't need FSH, right? Because those follicles are, we're sending back estrogen to the brain to talk to it and tell it to not make any more FSH. So that estradiol, that fake one basically says like, oh, well, we don't, but the brain says, oh, we don't need any more because we already have it circulating in the blood. So it's all good. And if it's this high enough dose, it just kind of like puts the brakes on pretty much making our hormones, our sex hormones. And if the hormones that get made, they can't tell the ovaries to start getting an egg ready for ovulation. And so that's really what's going on there. Progestin pills are a totally different thing, but the progestin um, in the combined pills, those go in the second half of your cycle. So you start with the estradiol pills and you take the progestin and they thicken the cervical fluid. Um, they thin out the uterine lining. That's why a lot of us don't really bleed or we bleed very little while we're on the pill. It makes our period a lot lighter. And so this will just help prevent us from fertilizing or our bodies from fertilizing an egg. Um, so it's kind of like a backup a little bit because sometimes we do ovulate on the pill and you know, that could be because we didn't take it as directed or we skipped a pill. I mean, I feel like we're all guilty of, <laughs> of skipping pills. I definitely did. Um, and I think the other thing too, to consider is that if you're over a certain weight, I can't remember the exact weight and I don't want to say it. I think if anyone is on the pill, you should definitely look up the, the insert that comes with your pill online on the pill manufacturer. But if you're over a certain weight, the pill is less effective. And sometimes I've heard that that's not communicated to patients. And I, I feel like that's a big problem because my sense from my experience over the years is that, you know, the pill isn't as effective as, as we say it is because of, you know, people not taking it as directed or, you know, they're, they're a certain weight and it just isn't generally as effective for someone at that weight or above. Um, so, that, you know, there's multiple things going on here. And then some of us, you know, we metabolize the estrogens faster, so it just isn't as effective. So I think that that, you know, it's certainly something for us to consider. I don't know if you've experienced that in your work too. Yeah, so I do come across a lot of queries and questions, but obviously being inside the menopause space, it's more in relation to I've gone to my GP or my doctor and they've prescribed me a combine pill rather than HRT. Why would they do that? Now, this is where we get into the world of, and it's probably a nice segue actually into then we understand that we've got this amazing body. The brain is like the driving force of our endocrine system, communicating every single day. And if we could see all of this happening, we would just literally be in awe of ourselves. Um, right through into then introducing a synthetic form of these two hormones. So you do mention there is an estrogen and a progesterone synthetic form of both. So I think when we when we look at this, it's important that I explain this before I then answer your question. I suppose the, the contraceptive pill, the purpose for that being that we want to then support women through their contraceptive choice. Multiple different options are available, not just the pill. However, when we come into the perimenopause stage of our lives, and we know within the UK, I know because I have many ladies in the US that I support, Australia, we just do not have the education within our medical space. So not an awful lot. I'm not going to say nobody because we do have certain doctors and medical professionals that do go out on their own to get their education in menopause. But with it not being part of the core curriculum for our doctors, especially in the UK, we very rarely find a medical professional that is a general practitioner that has any menopause um, related knowledge. 
However, what we do know is that they are getting some core education around how to prescribe the contraceptive. So, of course, and this is not being ill or speaking ill of GPs or doctors, they go with what they know. And because they don't know HRT, they don't feel comfortable prescribing it. However, when we look at what this means, and I literally just had this a couple of weeks ago at an event where a lady said to me, Adele, why am I on the contraceptive pill that my GP has put me on after I'd given a talk around and answered many questions about menopause and how we can really care for ourselves best? And her question very much had the response of, because it's what they know. So they'll prescribe this to combat many of the symptoms that you're facing. However, when we consider that the contraceptive pills, if we look at the combined pill, the um, microgynin being one of them, this containing the synthetic hormones. However, if we look across into the HRT space, hormone replacement therapy options, we then have more micronized options, more body identical forms of estradiol, in the transdermal application route, which we know does not carry risk. And then the micronized progesterone elements such as Euchigestan or Prometrium within the US, we use that quite a lot. So I think that the the whole concept of this is coming way back into, it's all about knowledge and education. And there's a massive part to this that we talked about off air as well, where I hugely advocate being responsible for our own bodies, understanding them and knowing that they are our own responsibility, not our GPs or medical practitioners responsibilities. So part of this is about us standing up and educating ourselves and asking all the questions, not being afraid to be that person that just has the questions. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. And exactly not being afraid, having courage to ask these questions. Because when I look at the research on, like, for instance, teenagers and bone development, for instance, you know, it's just like, there, you know, there is research that shows suppression of ovulation with the oral contraceptives, you know, during this adolescence time, uh, you know, can hinder a girl's ability to achieve optimal bone mass. I mean, this is a huge problem for us, right? And we are not really having this conversation. I, I feel like I'm just constantly seeing girls being put on the pill for these problems that really are starting as teenagers. I think that there's this myth that endometriosis can't begin on, you know, at your very first period. And that's untrue, right? We can have endometriosis from a very young age. And in fact, it is, I believe, the number one cause of period pain in the teenage population. I don't know if that study was done in the US. I think it was. You know, that's very telling. And so I think that, you know, we're we're just sort of, again, band-aiding um, a lot of these problems that are caused by underlying conditions that we really need to address. And I think then, like what you've talked about, what you've been through with what happens when we come off of the pill, right? Of course, there's millions of of women who've been on these pills and these contraceptives have taken them without incident. And that's really great. But there are so many issues when we come off that, you know, we both see in our work that I think are, you know, really important to to discuss as well, too, or just at least acknowledge that this this exists. Yes. and, And you've mentioned endometriosis. We've just not long had endometriosis awareness month as well. So for those that are not familiar with what that is, then absolutely please do familiarize yourself, especially if you are having some of the key symptoms. Um, You know, this is not just a painful period. Um, Endometriosis is something that is so life changing, altering, debilitating for many women. Right. I was flabbergasted at the impact around the globe that this has. And yet there are solutions And those solutions are not about just putting yourself onto some hormones to try and stop the bleeds and to stop the pain. I don't want to say we run the risk because there's no such bloody thing, but we certainly could expose an awful lot of topics of conversation going down this route. I I feel that, you know, from the, the place that you and I sit within in women's health and empowerment, that's the big thing. It's about that vibrancy of choice and empowerment. This becomes a piece of, you know, this is the inner feminist in me coming out and I never apologize for this, but this almost becomes the point of 
Is it just a bit of, oh God, not another woman's issue. Let's just kind of stop the reproductive system doing its thing. And that will, that will stop the issues you're having here. You know, it's almost that silencing of the problem, but not supporting of the problem. Oh gosh, it's exactly that. I feel like it's just, let's shut your body up with this thing and, um, and send you on your way. And it, it does. If it, it does feel like a feminist issue, it, it. I mean, it really is. There's, you know, there's so much gender bias in, in medicine. I mean, we know this. It's existed forever, and I feel like we're slowly working our way out of it. But it's still, it's gender bias, and then there's race bias on top of that. So there's, you know, there are multiple issues at play for sure. So much, so so much, so gra- much ground we've covered already in this episode as well. So thank you to all of you that are still here and listening with us. I suppose in the whole process of this, we have then talked about our periods and bleeds. We've talked about the pill and contraception and the hormones and what that does inside our body. And I'd probably be keen to just spend a few moments with you then going inside the world a little bit more, which is my space around our menopause journey. So you mentioned as we were talking about, you know, our changes up into our 30s and then our periods change. So a little bit of a share from some of the ladies that I've supported and still support now around the globe but dealing with one of my ladies who had very severe perimenopausal bleeding, saturating clothing, saturating bed linen, um, really painful, very depleted with her iron. So ferritin levels were extremely low when we ran bloods and we started a course of iron replacement. Um, we actually had to bring in some medications to support with the bleeding. So the transemic acids, that was one of the ones that we looked at using as well. But I think that this becomes a challenge and a problem for so many women when they've never experienced flooding or heavy bleeding prior to. So it'd be interesting to just chat to you a little bit around um, the changes the body goes through when we enter into that perimenopause stage of life. Yes, I feel like this is the stage of the menstrual life cycle that everyone is talking about now. Have you noticed? Like everybody wants to know about perimenopause, right? My perspective on this is, you know, we really, there are these two phases of perimenopause, right? And that phase one, when it starts to get underway, women tend to experience, you know, this combination of things, right? They, they could have increased anovulatory cycles or ovulation occurs sooner or later in the cycle, this lower quality ovulation. So that little follicle is just not as healthy as it once was to produce as much progesterone as we would need uh, for that second half of our cycle. And and so we would be in a situation where we have this decreased progesterone. And that seems to be what most of us experience during this, this time of the life cycle. As I said, that earlier ovulation, the shorter menstrual cycles, uh, shorter luteal phases due to that lower progesterone. Those are all things that, you know, we tend to see. Um, so cycles that are 25 days or shorter uh, often tend to be what, you know, women might experience. And as I was saying, that that shorter luteal phase, right? So it will drop down from the average of 12 to 14 days, which we might see consistently in our 20s and 30s, to 11, 10, nine days long. Um, and again, it's, I was saying earlier, you know, that you, that luteal phase needs to be a certain length, um, for us to have a fertile, consider what to be considered a fertile cycle. And so those are, you know, some of the things that we, I think we start to notice the most. You know, it's that, it's the decrease in the progesterone relative to estrogen. This estrogen dominance, I feel like that can be a very confusing term in and of itself, but this can really go on for a number of years. So I feel like that's, you know, what a lot of people experience. And and just to highlight the estrogen dominance piece, uh, you know, it looks different for different people. Obviously, you can be estrogen dominant, but even have low estrogen, you just happen to have progesterone that's even lower. And so you're still in that estrogen dominant state, and you might have uh, those symptoms, or you might actually experience symptoms of low estrogen and, you know, and then low progesterone. So it, it's a little confusing, I think, but I, I think it's more important than anything to just pay attention to your symptoms, uh, then, you know, so that you know what's, what's going on for you. And so in terms of the symptoms, you know, these are obviously due to the changes in ovulation and the sex hormone production starting to sputter a little bit. And we were saying, right, the heavy periods, you mentioned this client of yours, 
I feel like that's one of the biggest issues, right? The heavy periods, the flooding, um, this irregular period pattern, the start and stop periods, you know, that's, that's often the case. And then there's people like me, and I don't want to make anyone hate me by any means, because I would actually love a heavier period. I just am getting lighter and lighter periods. And so sometimes that happens too, right? Some of us just get shorter and lighter periods. We notice irregular bleeding or spotting at different times in the cycle. Uh, we might skip periods altogether during this phase. There, you know, there's multiple ways this shows up. And, you know, and as you and I were discussing, I feel like there's there's lots of things we can do to help mitigate this, right? There's it's not like you're just helpless and beholden to whatever your body wants to do to you that month. There's certainly a lot you can do throughout the month to help you that at that time of the month. As I was saying, right, there's there's also this this thing where some of us just get these shorter, lighter periods and they just eventually stop, you know, as we end um perimenopause. So there's, there's lots of ways um, this can play out. And I think as we get more into our 40s, things really start to shift, right? We we might have even more heavy bleeding. Uh, you know, the brain is, is releasing all of this FSH, which I was talking about earlier, and the LH. And so that's getting higher and higher. And so that's, again, a sign that you're definitely in perimenopause. And the idea here is that your ovaries just aren't responding the way they used to. So your brain's like, okay, let me just send some more. And, and that is, you know, that is a sign that, you know, your, your body is just like trying to, to make this thing happen and it's doing its best. But, you know, if you're not ovulating, then of course the progesterone drops even more and your periods might be longer, heavier or shorter, lighter. It just kind of depends on who you are and what your genetics are and your situation. And then this is the sort of final phase of your ovaries winding down and shutting down. And of course, as you were talking about, right? I mean, our estrogen and progesterone basically affect everything and our testosterone too. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that we are like, we have receptors on practically every tissue in our body for these hormones. And so when, if you can name it, it's likely because of the deficiencies or, you know, the massive fluctuations in your estrogen that's causing all of this, like the hot flashes and the energy crashes and the problems with sleep and oh, sleep. I swear. I think back to my teenage self. <laughs> I wish I could sleep like that again. Premenstrual symptoms, emotional roller coaster that is this time of our lives. And I think for modern women, this is so challenging because some of us are having babies in our 40s during this time. Some of us are dealing with teenagers. We're dealing with aging parents. We're at the peak of our careers in some cases. There's just so much happening at that time. So much stimulus. And and then our bodies are just not quite cooperating <laughs> with us because we live in the modern world and we're just, it's just not quite conducive, right? I know. And you know, I think it's one of these things as well where, you beautifully explain it there as well, just around what is happening internally to the body. You know, the brain is still trying to make everything work as it did, but actually as we age, it's that natural, that natural progression, isn't it? That actually we, we no longer then are in our fertile window effectively with perimenopause being that stretch of time for some women. It may just be a few years for others. It could be 10. And then we hit that final kind of positioning of we're in perimenopause. We have that one day, which is our menopause day when we've not had 12 consecutive bleeds. So 12 months of no bleeds plus one day is our menopause day. But then we're in postmenopause for the rest of our life with no further bleeding. A few nuances that obviously fall into that, but we'll just, we'll hold it there. So based on all of this, we've then had this new bottom out of our key sex hormones. And you mentioned estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, three core hormones. And yes, testosterone is our hormone too, girls. It's a really core one. It's like our badass hormone. It's converted yeah, I mean, estrogen comes from testosterone. And I, I think that that's the other thing, right, that we don't even realize is that your actual testosterone is converted into estradiol. And, you know, and that's how we make all of our estrogens. So yeah, I mean, like, it's all pretty important. <laughs> so important, so important. So I would love to just maybe look at what your top tips would be based on all of the knowledge that you have shared with us during this episode very kindly. What would maybe be your key take-homes, even if we said just a couple of top tips for our ladies listening to this right now that are thinking, okay, wow, like my brain is full of all this knowledge and information. 
But those that are still having a bleed right now, what would be your main top tips or advice for doing that in a very healthy, happy way? Yeah, you know, I like just to reiterate what you've been saying about really taking responsibility and getting to know your body and and really understanding your unique cycle doesn't matter how old you are. I really think that tracking your cycle and, and really knowing those basics about your, your period, like I was mentioning, you know, how long is your cycle? How long is your period? What does your period blood look like? Pain, but all of those symptoms, right? You want to make a note of those and, and really get to know what your body is up to because the every single symptom you experience is a response. It's just a response. It's actually your body working the way it's supposed to in response to something, likely something that's not agreeing with your body in some way. And and so that I think is, is so crucial because when I think about the amount of women who've come to me over the years, and I, I felt this way too, and I'm sure at some point you did too, uh, thinking that their body is broken or there's something wrong with them or they've done something wrong. We could avoid so much of that heartache, I think, by really tracking and, and understanding. So I'm a big fan of tracking those symptoms, using an app, getting to know what's going on with your body and tracking as well. So you know what phase of your cycle you're in so that you can really start to live in sync with your cycle. Uh, you know, it's really funny. I was, I was visiting my family last month or just last week, actually, with my sister and she was just in such a bad mood for like the last week, you know, the, the second to last week of our trip. And I was like, what's going on with her? I'm pretty sure she's getting her period. And every time I ask her, she gets mad at me, but <laughs> you know, whatever, because she doesn't do this thing. And, you know, and I am like, do you know who I am? You need to be tracking your cycle. I am telling you, you need to be doing this because when you know that your body is going to be, or that you're, you know, you're really sensitive to overstimulation, or you don't want to see a lot of people, or, you know, you don't want to do a lot of things or have a lot of commitments. You're going to live so much more in harmony with your life and your body. If you know that, and you've got that on your calendar. And so that's why I'm like, it will change your life. (laughs) If you track your cycle and know this information, if it's the only thing that women who are listening did, I would be so happy because, you know, I, I just watched my sister and I was just thinking, wow, you could actually make your life so much easier if you just listen to me. But, you know, I'm an older sister, so there is that. <laughs> but anyway, so I feel like that's a really big one. And on top of that, if you start taking your basal body temperature, that can tell you so much as well. You know, that can potentially indicate like something's up with your thyroid because your thyroid is your temperature regulator. So I'm a big fan of that as well. I I talked about this in my book and I feel like, you know, in the thyroid chapter, there's a whole thing on on taking your temperature just to get an idea. Um, You know, that can be useful. It can even tell you what's going on with your progesterone to some degree. If you have lower temperatures in the second half of your cycle, there's just a lot that our bodies are actually trying to communicate with us if we know how to understand the communication because, you know, they're speaking in a different language than what we speak in. But if we can, we can learn that language, right? It's game changing. I find it so fascinating. I kind of wish that I could go back to my 15 year old self and just say, right, let's try this a different way now. You know, let's give this a different shot. But we can't do that. And there's no regrets. There's no shame. There's no guilt. We do not have space for that here. We have space for love and just to move forward in a very self-compassionate way that this is our one and only beautiful, powerful body that we get. So taking that responsibility, I love it. Being aware and tracking your own symptoms so that you can see the flow of how you go, right? And for any of those ladies listening to this that have their own business or do anything of the kind where you need to have some really core energy about you, that would be really advantageous to you so that you can see where are the times within your menstrual cycle in the month that you get to say yes to the big projects because you'll be full of energy, testosterone will be surging and you are going to be so confidently badass. Or where are the times where actually you need to say no to all the things and just allow yourself some self-care time for a couple of days at the start of your bleed where hormones are low and you're feeling a little bit into that pity party mode of I just need to rest and that gets to be okay as well. You know, I think there's so many things we can do, right? But at the end of the day, there's a lot of information online right now. But if we could just come back to the basics rather than getting all in our heads about all the things, right? You know, there's like red light therapy and there's cold showers and there's this and there's that, like all of these things that we hear about, (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a lot and it's expensive. The questions I ask my clients is, you know, are you eating three meals a day? Are you eating breakfast? Do you feel like you have, you know, stable moods throughout the day? If you don't, then blood sugar is likely an issue. And a meal with healthy protein, complex carbs and fat and fiber is going to be completely game changing for you. And, you know, are you sleeping consistently? Sometimes with my clients, it's just like, okay, we're just going to work on sleep. And so that's, you know, the questions you need to be asking yourself. Do you have the foundational pieces covered? Because if you are going to just build on a rickety foundation, we know what's going to happen here. It's just, it's never really going to work, right? We've always said this, you can't out supplement no sleep and a bad diet and a lot of stress. Like it just doesn't really work. So I feel like if we could all just work on even one foundational piece, even if you took away, okay, I'm going to just work on my sleep, work on getting to bed at 10 p.m. versus like 1230 at night or one in the morning, which I know a lot of us are doing because I've been there. Um, you know, I'm talking to you. Uh, you know, those kinds of things can be just remarkable for our overall health and just our well-being in general. Um, and I think in perimenopause, as you well know, right, it's like, if you don't do this now, <laughs> it's going to suck so bad as you get older because your adrenals take over. They start, they start producing hormones, you know, when your ovaries are like, okay, I'm done now. And our adrenals really need to be in good, in good shape. The foundations, the basics, I think everyone can attempt at least one of those. I call it your inner resilience. So we need to have our inner operating resilience model in place. We need to. I love it. Oh, Nicole, thank you so much for your time, your life currency, as I refer to it as your brain power and your knowledge. Where can people find you and your amazing book? Thank you so much, Adele. I love this conversation with you. I am at NicoleJardim.com. You can find pretty much everything there, my blog, programs, everything. And my book is at FixYourPeriod.com. But it's basically anywhere uh, books are sold, generally speaking, in the US, Canada, the UK, and in other countries on the Fix Your Period website, you can find different listings of where it is. Um, I'm on Instagram at Nicole M. Jardim. I pretty much share the majority of my information on there. I'm also on TikTok, but I don't do a lot on there. I'm, I don't put a lot of effort in. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming. Um, and as you mentioned, my podcast, The Period Party. Yes. Amazing. Oh, so many places. We will pop some links in the show notes so that you can go and click. We like to make your life as easy as possible. It has been an absolute pleasure. We will definitely have to do a part two. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface with where we've got to with this, but I wish you all the best of days and health and happiness today. Take some time. Definitely re-listen if there's a section within here that you think, wow, that blew my brain. Please go back, listen to it again, make sense of it. And if you have any questions, Nicole and I are here to hold you. There is always space and a beautiful, safe, compassionate place. I truly hope this episode has sparked something vibrant inside of you. I ask only one thing. To help keep these episodes coming, please subscribe and share with another in your life. That's how we reach more women worldwide and we help them step into their power. Because together, we are working to remove any of the stigma and taboo that surrounds menopause. This does not need to be a daunting, a scary, a taboo time in anyone's life. So together, let's make menopause mainstream. <laughs>